snowfall warning on the south coast. We are out in there and we are salting all the roads. The return of winter weather and how long it'll stick around. Health system failures turn fatal. It was 100% preventable. The missed diagnosis that led to the death of a young shelter worker. And lingering trauma. Considering the amount of gunfire that was happening, it was a miracle and no one else was hurt. An internal report reveals the heavy burden on VPD officers and their path to recovery. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. It's been a busy day for road crews in communities all across the Lower Mainland. And with that snowfall warning, they are taking no chances. Grace Key is in Burnaby for us tonight, where hopefully drivers are taking it a little easy tonight. Grace? Yeah, we just got Highway 1 behind me here. Right now, things not too bad here on the roads. The snow, as you can see, falling right now. Some light snow not really sticking to the ground right now. Of course, the big concern for a lot of municipalities with that was that it was going to be coming down while everybody was heading home. Cities are getting ready for another blast of winter weather. In Surrey, crews have been working the past few days, checking ice and getting the roads ready for what could be a slippery drive home. Today, uh, I had the... Um uh, the snow event uh, before the traffic uh, start to get heavy. We are out in there and we are salting all the roads and the major area that we know are uh, problematic, uh, we are addressing them. In Vancouver, crews have been out for the past few days pre-treating priority routes with all the overnight frost and ice as well as in preparation for the expected snow. In Port Coquitlam, all priority roads and sidewalks are brined with the city's snow and ice fleet ready to be deployed. From Nanaimo to the North Shore and other parts of Metro Vancouver, the flurries started hitting by mid-afternoon. We do have a storm system rolling down the coast as we speak. And with the cold temperatures in place, that means as precipitation starts falling late this afternoon and into the evening hours, we could see a mixture of snow and rain right down to sea level, impacting this evening's commute. For the homeless, extra spaces will be set up through the Extreme Weather Response Program. In Vancouver, more than 200 mats will provide a dry, warm place for people to sleep. The Union Gospel Mission is typically full with a total of about 92 spaces, so that means they've had to turn people away. That means that even on nights where there's an extreme weather alert, we're going to be full and we have a lot of uh, people will have to turn away. So in the month of February, we've had 64 turnaways so far, but we've been able to for at least over half of those. All right, it's cooling down out there. Grace, the snow might be spotty, but it is having an impact. What have you learned about school closures? Yeah, Douglas College has actually announced that it's in-person classes, activities, and events that start at 6.30. Those are canceled because of the weather, just as, uh, just as an abundance of caution. One of the only ones so far. Let's hope it stays that way. Grace, thank you. All right, senior meteorologist Christy Gordon is here now with more on what the evening and the early morning commute might hold. Christy. Sophie, we've had a few areas that have dropped down to the zero mark. That's the North Shore, where we're seeing some accumulations across the region. Up towards Campbell River and the Port Alberni area, those areas also reporting snowfall falling and accumulating on the ground. For the most part, though, the streets are just wet. As we continue into the uh, sort of 6, 8, towards the 8 p.m. hour, we're going to continue to see those temperatures make their way potentially to the zero mark. So still another zero to four centimeters is possible, with higher elevations definitely getting 
the most of it. But for the most part, this is what we're expecting. And as we head towards the 10 p.m. mark, we're going to see a warm up and we'll likely see rainfall overnight, although there's a risk of freezing rain through the Fraser Valley. But during the day tomorrow and tomorrow's morning's commute looks good. We're expecting just rain. Back to you. All right. Thanks for that, Christy. Family and friends of a young shelter worker in Nanaimo are speaking out about her death from an undiagnosed serious infection. As Kylie Stanton reports, they believe she could have been saved if she'd had access to a family doctor. She was, yeah, full of life, super funny, had a great sense of humor. And at just 23 years old, she had already made her mark. She was destined to do big things in this world, and it's just horrible that this is what it's come to. Sophia died November 27th after being repeatedly misdiagnosed by doctors in Nanaimo. Is 100% preventable. Sophia, whose family has asked their last names not be used for privacy reasons, had been working here at the Nanaimo Unitarian Shelter, where in March of 2023, it suspected she contracted an infection that was missed. All she needed was a doctor to, to do blood tests and analyze those tests, and she would have got the help that she needed. Instead, after three years on the provincial government's Health Connect registry and still no family doctor, Sophia made repeated attempts to access the city's one and only walk-in clinic, never making it past the front doors. By June, when things hadn't improved, she had no choice but to take a medical leave from the shelter. In the months that followed, her mother says she was dismissed and misdiagnosed by Nanaimo healthcare workers. It was on her second trip to Nanaimo Regional General Hospital in mid-November. She was finally admitted. The mandatory blood work showing an internal infection. By then, it was too late. Her body was already going into sepsis. So they airlifted her to St. Paul's on a Friday afternoon. And by Sunday afternoon, she passed. Her story now making its way to the capital. Sophia was diagnosed incorrectly twice by this NDP's failing health care system. Well, this is uh, just a, an horrific story. There are going to be questions and grief, and we feel that. Melanie has made formal complaints with both the College of Physicians and Surgeons as well as Island Health that confirmed it is reviewing Sophia's care journey. Joining Melanie, who is also looking back, left wondering, what if? If she had a family doctor, it would not have been this way. She would still be here today. Kelly Stanton, Global News. An unusual battle between police investigating a shooting and a popular restaurant chain has prompted the provincial government to step in. As Kristen Robinson reports, it's all about the restaurant's response to a police request for its surveillance video. When gun violence plays out in public, police sometimes rely on private businesses, including bars and restaurants, for security footage, which is usually handed over without a fight. The, the general protocol is for people to give up, just not restaurants, but people to give up their video to help and assist the police in, in a manner that's fairly quick. It's the first time it's crossed my desk uh, that, uh, you know, there has been a refusal uh, to initially comply with police requests uh, for video. When police asked the Cactus Club in Coquitlam for its surveillance after a shooting in the parking lot wounded two earlier this month, the restaurant chain told RCMP to get a warrant, which they did. We had a gangland shooting in the vicinity uh, with uh, cameras that took place, like right 
near there, and they said, go and get a warrant. Um, that's just not acceptable, and I don't believe the public would accept that either. For a local business to insist that the RCMP get a warrant for information they might have that could lead to uh, an arrest is outrageous. I, I want to know their side of it. It doesn't make sense to me. We asked the Cactus Club why it would simply not hand over its surveillance video in cooperation with an investigation involving significant public safety concerns. The restaurant chain said the process of requesting a production order before releasing surveillance footage is a standard practice put in place across all of our locations. This protects privacy and insurers were following the law. It's not, uh, I don't think, a situation where they don't want to. I think it's a question of let's make sure before it gets released that it's, we're being a bit cautious here and protecting privacy. The public safety minister says the province has since amended the terms and conditions of this Cactus Club's liquor license. That they must have uh, video uh, surveillance and they must provide it to the police or a liquor inspector upon request. Kristen Robinson. Global News. A study obtained by Global News reveals the often devastating impact that attending disturbing calls can have on Vancouver police officers. As Catherine Urquhart reports, it shows the volume of incidents experienced by the officers and the subsequent toll on their mental health. When a brazen shooting happened outside a Vancouver bike shop 10 years ago, it left one person clinging to life. Two officers who were nearby and witnessed the attempted murder ended up in a shootout with the suspect, who was captured and jailed. One of those officers was Sergeant Chris Berta. For the first uh, week, I'll say, uh, I was probably getting about two hours of sleep uh, because of the amount of adrenaline that's pumping through your system. Traumatic incidents, such as that one, have informed a study called Police Officers, Stressors and Strain, done by UBC's Sauter School of Business. It found operations employees had experienced 22.3 critical incidents the previous year, and on average, officers had experienced 164 critical incidents in their careers. Employee wellness is as much a physical thing as it is an emotional and uh, uh, psychological thing. 18% of respondents reported moderate to extremely severe levels of depression. 20% were experiencing moderate to extremely severe levels of anxiety. And 25% were experiencing moderate to extremely severe levels of stress. The study found officers were 1.8 to 2.3 times more likely to consider suicide compared to the general population. You don't know who or when someone's thinking those thoughts unless they overtly tell someone that they are. And if that's the case, then we're in a position uh, as a union and as a police department to uh, offer those supports to people. Study recommendations included quicker access to mental health resources, which was improved in the latest collective agreement. We need to do what we can to ensure that uh, the mental health of our members is uh, taken care of. Uh, we need our members healthy to be at work to serve the community. 220 officers participated in all three of the surveys, which were done anonymously over several months. I have my days where I think about it. Um, it's, uh, it's, uh, you know, it takes time. It just takes time. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. In a little over two years, Vancouver will welcome fans from all over the world for seven matches of the FIFA World Cup. 
The countdown to kickoff has already begun, but as Richard Zussman reports, the cost of hosting the tournament is still unknown. It's a party with the entire world invited, but so far, there's no budget. Well, our commitment is to be completely transparent along the way, and so, uh, and we'll be able to put out some numbers in the coming months. Seven FIFA World Cup 2026 games will be played at BC Place, including Canada playing twice. The province is on the hook for upgrades to the stadium, security, and a bunch of other costs, and is hoping for some financial help from Ottawa. But unlike the Olympics, two years out, and there's still no financial plan. But if Toronto is any indication, that idea is going to be expensive. Toronto releasing an updated budget Monday. Originally, the city estimating hosting would cost between 30 and $45 million. In 2022, those costs ballooning to an estimated $300 million. And now, with six games, the budget has nearly burst. Staff estimating taxpayers will be on the hook for at least $380 million. And Vancouver is hosting more games at seven. At least Toronto City Hall is being open and transparent with taxpayers about what this will cost. In BC, we've seen just the opposite. Vancouver beat out Edmonton for the right to host World Cup games, but the province has never provided any details in terms of what was committed to the organizing committee or to FIFA. Everywhere FIFA has gone over the past couple decades, scandal and, uh, and mismanagement have followed. Um, at the end of the day, the FIFA bureaucrats aren't accountable to BC taxpayers, but Lana Popham and Ken Sim are. The last tangible number the province provided was a cost of $250 million, with an estimated $1 billion in economic activity over five years. We have about th over 300,000 people coming during the matches. The BC budget mentioning FIFA once linked to $3 billion in contingencies. Still, no clue how big a kick all these games may be to the province's bottom line. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. All right, we need to clarify something because it would have been confusing in that report. We had a problem with one of the graphics. It was wrong. Yeah, it said BC's FIFA budget. It should have read Toronto's FIFA budget because, as Richard pointed out in that report, we don't know what uh, the budget for Vancouver's games will be. So that was a graphic for Toronto's FIFA budget, just to be clear. Exactly. We apologize for that mistake. We'll get it fixed for later broadcasts. All right. Moving on now, tax season is underway, and so too are tax scams. Canadians lose millions of dollars each year to tax-related scams, and the CRA is warning taxpayers to be extra vigilant. Yeah, with more on the latest scams and how to protect yourself, we'll bring in Consumer Matters reporter Ann Drua. Hi, Ann. Hi, Chris. The Canadian Anti-Fraud Centre is already reporting. It's receiving reports of fraudulent text messages claiming to be from the Canada Revenue Agency. The messages include the victim's full name and social insurance number asking that a payment be sent to a phone number. The CRA scammers are becoming more and more sophisticated in their approach and very good at sounding legitimate. Now, the agency says seniors in particular are at risk and those who are new to Canada. The CRA is also seeing what they are calling tax schemes involving so-called tax promoters who attempt to deceive their victims by promising to reduce the taxes they owe. The schemes usually involve a sales pitch or perhaps an advertisement often found on social media 
media platforms. In addition, the CRA says countless scams continue, including fake text messages. Remember, the agency will never ask for a payment via text message. In general, a CRA... A says taxpayers should be skeptical of any communication that claims to be from the Canada Revenue Agency, especially if it involves personal information like a social insurance number, credit card number, bank account number, or passport number. The agency has even created a special alert page on its website to keep Canadians informed about these types of scams. Scammers are really aware of the social and economic events that are happening currently, and they try to sound more legitimate in their scams. So again, it's very important to be aware, and when in doubt, you can always hang up the phone call or delete those texts or emails. If something is too good to be true, it usually is. You need to know your own information better than the scammers and make sure that you are not providing or being hasty in clicking on any links or sharing any sensitive information like your social insurance number or password or even banking information. Now, if you do receive a call from the CRA and you are unsure, hang up the phone and call the agency using the number on the official CRA website. If you do fall victim to a scam, the CRA wants to hear from you immediately so it can put enhanced security measures on your account and disable your online access, at least temporarily. You should also reach out to your local police and the Canadian Anti-Fraud Centre to report the fraud. Chris, Sophie? All right, good advice at this time of year. Thanks, Anne. A leg hold trap catches the family dog. It could have been my daughter that walked in that trap. Pearl's brush with death and why her owners say it shouldn't have happened. Next on the News Hour. Worst is over. And it was the worst. A rare and near fatal infection hits a Vancouver firefighter on vacation. How his family trip to Asia took a devastating turn. Coming up later. Plus. With this project, we want to treat it as the, the, the life-nourishing material that it is. The Miracle of Mud, a project to preserve the rich biodiversity of the Richmond foreshore. That's still to come tonight. Right now, though, a BC family is speaking out after their dog's leg had to be amputated after being stuck in a leg hold trap for nearly three days. As Cassidy Moscone tells us, it's believed the trap was set to target wolves in the area. Warning, some of the images in this story will be disturbing. Three-and-a-half-year-old Pearl lived a happy, healthy life on her family's remote farm in northern BC. We live and are surrounded by uh, crown land uh, with nothing, nothing out there but the wilderness, so she protects us from bears and wolves. The livestock guardian dog's career was cut short. Then she didn't come home for dinner, so we started to get worried. After two nights in the freezing Fort St John temperatures, Pearl was finally found with her paw caught in a leg hold trap. Frozen solid, indented and swollen, the Anatolian shepherd's leg had to be amputated. At no point in Pearl being missing did we think, oh, she's caught in a, a trap. Had we had known that trapping was going on, we could have pinpointed her location. Under the regulations, a trap can be set 200 meters from a dwelling. And the regulations are, are quite frankly outdated. There's no obligation for trappers to notify the general public um, that these traps are out there. 
Animal advocates say simple changes to legislation, like mandated signage, could save so much suffering. Leg hold traps, they are extremely dangerous. They can and have harmed people, including children, and they continue to harm our animals, our pets, our companions. People are simply not aware. The BC Trappers Association told Global News more than 1,200 signs have been provided to its members, but trappers aren't required to use them by law. The minister responsible not ruling out changing that. Let's look at it. Let's see what the signage would be. Would it, would it do what it's, we hope it would, which would be to warn pet owners? Cassidy Moscone, Global News. Fort St. John RCMP are looking to recover some unique items stolen during a recent break-in at an abandoned property in town earlier this month. Officers found a back door kicked in in the 8200 block of 98th Street on February 9th. Fourteen trophy antlers were taken along with a cinnamon-colored black bear hide, a wolf hide, and boxes of 22 caliber ammunition. Police say the collection represents years of trophy hunts and fond memories to the family involved. Anyone who has information or has encountered a new collection of trophy antlers or hides is asked to call police. Coming up, the big cleanup on the Alouette River. After years of delays dealing with derelict boats piling up on the banks, why there's a wave of relief today. But first, a dire warning about homelessness and the only real solution for it contained in a new report on the unhoused. A report on homelessness is calling on governments to protect temporary modular and SRO housing in Vancouver. Community leaders say without intervention, Vancouver's unhoused population is only expected to increase dramatically. Alyssa Thibault reports. A stark warning in the midst of a housing crisis. If nothing's done by 2030, we estimate that about 4,700 people would be unhoused just by the loss of units alone. A new report by the Carnegie Housing Project looks into the possible loss of low-income housing in the downtown east side over the next six years. One aspect is the impending closure of temporary modular housing. The city has more than 600 units, but licence terms will be expiring. What's going to happen to them? Where are they going to go? In a statement to Global News, the City of Vancouver confirms there are no new temporary modular housing sites underway, adding the program was always intended to be temporary as the city prioritises permanent housing solutions. There are also concerns about rent increases for SROs. The current shelter rate is around $500 a month and advocates say some residents are being renovicted. And the landlords are trying to buy them out, offering them $15,000 to leave so they can raise the rent to $1,700 or $1,800. Vancouver's previous council tried to bring in rent controls for SROs. That move was shot down in February by the BC Supreme Court, saying only the province had the power to do it. Housing Minister Ravi Kalon says the province is reviewing the court's decision, but the government's long-term focus is to move away from the SRO model. Uh, and that's what we've been advocating to the federal government. Just join us and the city, create a table where we are addressing this over the long term. We're working on it. If the federal government doesn't come on board, we're going to move ahead without them. The report also outlines some immediate recommendations, including opening up to 1,500 more shelter spaces. Alyssa Thibault, Global News. Work is finally underway in Pitt Meadows to clean up several sunken and abandoned boats and other debris along the Alouette River. As Janet Brown reports, there are concerns of potential pollution in the water since it flows into the Pitt River 
prime salmon spawning habitat. Coldwater Divers is busy on a stretch of the Alouette River near the mouth of the Pitt River, removing old docks, pilings, abandoned boats, and debris. It's a fair sized job, yeah. Uh, we have about a mile and a half's worth of uh, cleanup that we're doing, so we already cleaned up the southern side, and now we're just focusing on the northern side. It's a pretty exciting day for all of us, especially for the Alouette River. For years, groups like the Alouette River Management Society have been campaigning all levels of government to have the river cleaned up because of concerns about pollution. It felt like buck passing. Everybody was sympathetic at every level. There's a lot of jurisdiction. It's just who eventually will take responsibility. It is Transport Canada that is now overseeing the cleanup operations taking place this week between Silverbridge and the Pitt Meadows Marina. This is just some of the debris, concrete, styrofoam, even this old piping the salvage team has managed to recover from the water. It's really gratifying to see uh, all of this work happening on the river. It's cleaning up the, f the salmon habitat. The fish are going to thank us uh, for sure uh, with our sockeye returning in July and August. There are calls for a way of tracking down the owners of abandoned vessels, such as a database or registration system. Sort of like a car alongside the road. If the car is not registered, a tow truck shows up takes your car away to the impound. After X amount of days, it's either scrapped or auctioned off. There are some loopholes where, you know, they're, they're not able to kind of trace the people or people just walk away. It's just not as accountable. Uh, otherwise, we wouldn't see so many boats just being left in the waterways. The city of Pitt Meadows says Transport Canada will be making every effort to find the abandoned vessel owners and hold them accountable. Janet Brown, Global News. The groundbreaking case of AI in the courtroom. How the punishment for a BC lawyer who misused it is echoing throughout the legal world with a warning to all of us. And the joke from Canadian, from a Canadian comedy troupe, Danger Cats, that bombed so bad they're cancelling shows. A planned comedy show has been cancelled after widespread outrage over t-shirts sold by the Canadian troupe. The group Danger Cats was widely criticized after selling t-shirts that are deeply offensive and disrespectful to the families of the many victims of serial killer Robert Picton. The show had been scheduled for the House of Comedy in New Westminster next month, but it is no longer going ahead. In an online post, the Danger Cats say shows in Edmonton, and Ottawa were also cancelled. And all the proceeds from the sales of those shirts will apparently go to Ukraine. People working in B.C.'s justice system are considering the consequences of a landmark ruling concerning the use of artificial intelligence. Ramina Dea has the latest on a B.C. lawyer who's being held personally liable for using chat GPT and filing fake case law with the courts. In a rare ruling, lawyer Chong Ke is on the hook for thousands of dollars after Justice David Masuhara found her personally responsible for putting fake cases before the court 
concocted by ChatGPT. I thought it was a well-reasoned and well-balanced decision. Fraser McLean is the lawyer who uncovered the bogus briefs in a family matter before the court, the best interests of three children at stake. It's the first case of its kind in Canada. What's scary about these AI hallucinations is they're not creating <laughs> citations and summaries that are ambiguous. They look 100% real. That's why it's important that judges and lawyers need to be vigilant in double-checking these things. Kurt withdrew the cases when she realized they were fake, but she did not immediately inform opposing counsel about why she pulled them. While the judge found Kurt had no intent to mislead and apologized for her serious mistake, Masuhara said citing fake cases in court is an abusive process and is tantamount to making a false statement. Unchecked, it can lead to a miscarriage of justice. Canada is not the only country in the world dealing with the harms of generative AI in the courtroom. A veteran lawyer from New York and a British judge made international headlines last year after they were duped by ChatGPT. Legal experts say the real danger is to the broader public. Access to justice is a real problem just because of legal costs. And it's not helpful when lawyers have to trace uh, and track down, go on these wild goose chases for cases that don't even exist. This will send, I think, an important message to the legal community, if it hasn't already, about the limits of using ChatGPT in this way. Kerr must review all her files before the court and provide a report within 30 days of the ruling. If any materials contain generative AI content, she must disclose immediately. Kerr is also under investigation by the Law Society. Romina Dea, Global News. Coming up, a BC man battles for his life during a vacation in Asia. It's a small sacrifice, a leg for a life. The outpouring of support for a local firefighter and his family after a near-deadly infection. Plus... I just see so much potential for this kind of a concept. Getting sentimental about sediment. The project to preserve our coastal environment. Next... An environmental group is working to reverse 100 years of human disturbance and restore ecological balance to a Richmond marsh. Aaron MacArthur shows us how the pilot project's effects are already evident, helping improve vital shoreline habitat. On the tidal flats west of Richmond, the culmination of a decade worth of scientific work is pouring out of the end of this pipe. A pilot project aimed at reshaping the land and the sea. Since the 1980s, at least 160 hectares of tidal marsh have died off at Sturgeon Bank and converted into unvegetated mudflats. Ducks Unlimited Canada has partnered with government, the port and First Nations to redistribute silt from the Fraser River. For more than a century, the Fraser has been channeled and dredged. The silt disregarded as waste material. Now scientists are trying to use the material restoring habitat. Tidal marshes are incredibly ecologically important. They provide important habitat for juvenile salmon who are out migrating from areas of fresh water into the ocean. These tidal marshes also are very effective at sequestering carbon. The pilot project is set to stretch out over the next decade. Dredged sediment deposited all along Sturgeon Bank. The first batch of silt and sand deposited last fall and so far has stayed in place. Researchers monitoring for vegetation growth. 
we really want to better understand what is the response of the biological and the physical processes throughout the foreshore to this sediment addition. The other part of this equation is flood control. Sturgeon Bank and tidal marshes along the Fraser River Delta act as a natural barrier, reducing wave height and moderating high tides. The city of Richmond estimates it will need to spend hundreds of millions of dollars in the coming decades on dikes and hard infrastructure to keep the ocean and river out. City engineers interested to see what solutions nature could provide. Flood protection is a huge part for the city. Uh, a healthy sturgeon bank really provides a lot of uh, good flood mitigation for the city. The length of this pilot project will largely be determined by funding. If it proves successful, it's something that can be scaled up across the entire Fraser Delta. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. All right, let's bring in meteorologist Christy Gordon once again with a look at our weather forecast. And we're watching uh, uh, for that snowfall, Christy. <laughs> Held You're off right where we are. Gonna have yeah. <laughs> well, the flakes are falling all across the region. I'm actually going to show you some tower cams in a second. But as you can see, temperatures are just above freezing across the region. We had a drop in the West Vancouver region to zero degrees, but then it came back up to one degree. So that's what we're looking at. Very little accumulations on the roads, which really is ideal, right? When you look at these images across the region, we certainly are seeing some flakes. You can see snow on the sides of the roads in, in the North Vancouver region, out towards White Rock as well, and flakes falling across Vancouver. Vancouver Island in a number of areas, but generally is just wet and not accumulating, although it is on the grass. So that is the pattern that we're going to expect for the next couple of hours before we continue to just transition to rainfall. Don't forget, we still have a risk of freezing rain through the Fraser Valley. One thing I do want to mention, though, winter storm warning in effect. And in fact, we are expecting the potential for 40 centimeters of snow on the Kokala into Thursday. This is the breakdown 10 tonight, 20 tomorrow, and another 10 tomorrow night. Do not travel the mountain passes up into Whistler as well uh, without snow tires because we are going to see substantial snow indeed and an avalanche danger rating is now high all across the region apparently there's been numerous reports of slab avalanches across the south coast area yesterday and so that has prompted them to issue that um, avalanche the high avalanche danger rating in many parts of the province so here's a look we're expecting still snowfall for the columbia kuni region overnight but a transition to rain is expected we'll see rain in many parts of uh, the southern portions of the province as temperatures are going to warm up to about eight degrees for Metro Vancouver. We're expecting temperatures to climb or drop, I should say, as we head into the weekend. And that's when we have uh, still the potential for snow on the mountains. That's exactly what we need. We need it to stay cool over the next little while. And it looks like it will. Tonight's Central Windows weather window coming to you from Quinell Della, sharing this serene shot of the snow on the ground and one or two lone trees there. Okay, back to you. Very nice. Thank you, Christy. Glad that snow's fallen up in the mountains and not so much down here for the drive home. Squire joins us now with a look ahead to sports and hockey tonight. Well, yes, you don't want a snowstorm when the Canucks are playing. And remember when they were on that losing streak last week? Rick Tockett said some of his players needed to step it up the way JT Miller has. He wants to amp it up here for the last 20. You know, he, you know, he wants to get, you know, he wants people to get on his back and let's go. Miller was the leader in that win over Boston on Saturday. Tonight, the Penguins are here. Look forward to that game also ahead. I only intend to get back on my snowboard, my motorcycle. Strength and resilience after a life-altering amputation. A Vancouver man's brush with death on a family vacation.
very drugged up with allergy meds. Squire Barnes joins us now. With I know. I'm sorry if I say anything crazy, folks. There's a reason <laughs> for it. Um, only the Yarmir Yager Jersey Retirement Party had more penguins in one place than tonight's game will between the Pittsburgh Penguins and the Vancouver Canucks at Rogers Arena. There are ex-penguins in the Canucks front office, behind the bench, and on the ice. And there's nothing but love between these two franchises. This is not going to be a family feud night. With more on that and tonight's game, let's go down to Rogers Arena where Jay was earlier today. The Vancouver Canucks are back atop the NHL standings thanks to that thrilling comfort behind overtime victory against the Boston Bruins on Saturday. Tonight they take on a Pittsburgh Penguins team that's won back-to-back -back hockey games, yet the Penguins are still nine points back of the Tampa Bay Lightning for the final wildcard spot in the East. Well, I mean, just over the years uh, watching and being around those guys or even watching from afar, you know, they got a core group that doesn't get, you know, they don't get antsy in games. They, you know, they got that pedigree and it's, uh, it's experience. It goes a long way. In NHL circles, the Vancouver Canucks organization is affectionately referred to as the Penguins of the North. It's easy to understand why when you look at the strong connections that Jim Rutherford, Patrick Elvin, and even Rick Tockett had with the Penguins organization. The last time they won their back-to-back -back Stanley Cup championships, it was Jim Rutherford, the uh, general manager, and Patrick Elvin by his side, while Rick Tockett was an assistant coach alongside Mike Sullivan. Check that, Talk. Check that, see if it's offside. I think Talk's done a great job with this team. Um, I think he's a really good coach. I always felt that way. Um, what, what I really admire about Talk is he's a student of the game and he brings a certain humility to the job. You know, he's always learning and trying to get better. He listens to people around him. I think one of his strengths is, is uh, the relationships that he builds with his, his players and also his staff. Um, he's just real. I think when you win Stanley Cups together, you. Uh, relationships really get galvanized and I have so much respect for Jim and Patrick and talk and uh, and all of those guys that I had the privilege to work with uh, through those times you know we we look back and, and think about all the good times but you know when when you really when I really stop and think about those Stanley Cup runs uh, you know every single series it wasn't it wasn't all highlights it was it, it was hard work and and a lot of uh, a lot of sweat and blood that went into it, both players uh, and staff included. And I, I just think Jim's leadership uh, was uh, tremendous through the whole process. Uh, and uh, he's bringing that to, to Vancouver. It doesn't surprise me and Patrick as well. So I have nothing but such, uh, such respect for what those guys bring. After tonight's game against the Pittsburgh Penguins, it's another stiff test for the Vancouver Canucks. The LA Kings come to town on Thursday. The Kings holding down the first wildcard spot, and they're also just two points back of the Edmonton Oilers for third in the Pacific Division. From Rogers Arena with your ringside report, Jay Janower, Global Sports. Little trivia note about Penguins coach Mike Sullivan. He was John Tortorella's assistant coach for that one season in Vancouver, and when Tortorella got suspended for six games, it was Sullivan who was the Canucks interim head coach. Okay, so back to the comeback win against Boston on Saturday. Is that the sign the Canucks have awakened from their nightmare losing streak? They did what they had to do on Saturday against a tiring Boston Bruins team in the third period. They kept applying pressure until they broke through, won it in overtime. J.T. Miller says it's a good sign because it came two nights after a brutal game in Seattle that had Rick Tockett a little perturbed at his team, to say the least. You know, the game in Seattle wasn't pretty, but sometimes you get a nice tongue lashing, and it makes you a little more quiet the next game. Uh, but like I said, it's... Uh, 
you know, we were doing a lot of a lot of good things in some of the games leading up to that. Um, but I think in the Seattle game, we had a right, we had a rough time with you know, the situation and being tired. And I think that we just it was a learning lesson for us. And guys took it the right way, and it was a good, you know, like I said after the last game, it didn't matter if we really came back and won. I think the mentality was the right thing, and you know, we were pushing all the way to the end. And sometimes you get those goals, and sometimes you don't. But I think it's good for the character in the long term. Uh, long term. This week, later this week, is the NFL Scouting Combine, where teams can get a close-up look at some of the draft prospects. Seattle picks 16th overall in the first round. Will they take a quarterback? Since 2010, the Seahawks have only ever drafted two quarterbacks, and neither in the first round. Russell Wilson in 2012, he was a third-rounder, and Alex Magoo in 2018. You know, 14 drafts, only drafting two quarterbacks is not something that we're necessarily uh, proud of, you know, um, it's just hap- it just ha- it's happened that way. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, every year it's a goal to try to acquire a quarterback, and whether that's a draft, free agency, whatever it looks like. Uh, but yeah, this this year's uh, draft class is a, is a is a is a is a cool group. A lot of a lot of variances in there. It really depends on how the new coaching staff feels about Geno Smith. That's, that's right. That's the key. All right. Thank you very much, Squire. A Vancouver firefighter faces his biggest battle, the rare infection that claimed his leg and his inspiring outlook despite it all. Up next. Jordan Armstrong is standing by in our newsroom now with a preview of what's coming up on Global News at 11, including some tech talk. Jordan. Indeed, Chris. Tonight, the B.C. resort community that's getting a cutting-edge wildfire detection system, 100 sensors and five cameras will be installed at Predator Ridge in Vernon this summer. At 11, how the wildfire detection system works and where else the technology is being tested. And Douglas College students have the night off. Classes canceled. Some think it's a bit silly. More rain than snow on campus as of 6 o'clock. Others say better to be safe than sorry. We'll hear from students tonight. Chris? Sounds good. Thanks very much, Jordan. Well, for the first time since undergoing life-altering surgeries, the Vancouver man is speaking publicly about his terrifying health scare overseas. That's right. Christopher Wan contracted necrotizing fasciitis while on family vacation in Asia earlier this month. After a life-saving operation in a Hong Kong hospital, he's grateful and hoping to come home soon. It was supposed to be the family vacation of a lifetime. The worst is over, and it was the worst. Christopher Wan, his wife Marie, and their two young kids were in Singapore, about to return to Hong Kong, when Christopher started feeling a sharp pain in his foot. You get on the plane, it's excruciating. Uh, I think, obviously, the difference in air pressure may have exacerbated the swelling. By the time their flight landed in HK, they knew it was serious. A day later, February 14th, Christopher was in surgery. The diagnosis? Necrotizing fasciitis, also known as flesh-eating disease, a rare form of skin infection. And it's called necrotizing, referring to how severe it is, because it's causing death, which is what necrosis is, of the tissues and can spread quite quickly. The doctors were forced to amputate his right leg from the knee down. Never in a million years would I have thought or imagined that I would say lines like, do whatever you can to keep him alive. You know, that's, that's what you hear in the movies. And 
I had to say that to a doctor. It can happen to anyone. The reality is, is that we we are always getting uh, exposure to bacteria, but individuals with even small breaks in the skin or deeper wounds to the tissue or the muscles are at risk for this condition. This is a very rare manifestation. Uh, Health Canada does estimate between 100 and 200 cases a year. And in my practice here in uh, St. Paul's in Vancouver, I'll see a case or two a year. The family says they have no idea where or how Christopher got infected. They've been overwhelmed by the support from the community back home, especially the GoFundMe, organized to help with the medical and rehab expenses. We have tremendous support, not just from friends and family, but Vancouver Fire and Rescue has been amazing. Christopher has served more than two decades with the Vancouver Fire Department. You may recognize his wife, Marie, who is Vancouver's popular anthem singer. But everything has been put on hold as they focus on the long recovery ahead. I fully intend to get back on my snowboard, my motorcycle, you know, back on the jiu-jitsu mats, do all the things that I was doing before. It's just going to take me a little longer to get back up to speed. Life goes on. There's, there's no choice here. We chose to live, and we're going to live. Jason Pierce, Global News. We wish them the best. Sure do. Amazing mm-hmm. couple. Great family. Okay, last word on weather, considering we're still in this snow warning, Christy. Yeah, well, for the most part, I think as we transition into the late evening hours, we'll continue to see this transition to rain. But snow is still falling. It's just not accumulating. And that's great news. Let's be honest. That's right. Careful out in the mountains, though. Thanks for watching, everyone. Good night, all.